Hello, everybody. Just a very quick one about Instagram. If you're on it, Meta, the parent company, is reducing the number of political posts visible to users on their feed. This is a real thing, not a hoax. So go to your Instagram profile, tap the three horizontal lines in the top right corner to open the settings tab, scroll down to what you see, click on content preferences, open political content, and turn on don't limit political content. That's an option. Otherwise, you won't see almost anything we post because we are deemed political. Please do that now or you won't even see the posts about our shows, our fun things. So if you want to see Guilty Feminist content and know when we're coming to a place near you, releasing a new podcast, do it now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, Guilty Feminists. Just before you listen to today's podcast, I wanted to give you a bit of context. At the end of 2019, I sat down with Phoebe Waller-Bridge, the one and only, at the Royal Festival Hall to talk about the release of the Fleabag script book. And we had a wonderful time because nobody told us that a global pandemic was coming our way just months later. We've had lots of timely podcasts to put out since then. But now, finally, if you weren't able to join us in person, you can hear everything we had to say to each other. And speaking of joining us in person... Although we can't do any live shows in London at the moment, thanks to our good friends at King's Place, we can do a live streamed recording, which you can watch from the comfort and safety of your own home, wherever you are in the world. So let's have a global guilty feminist army slash congregation. That's on Monday, the 27th of January at 7.30pm. And if that's not a convenient time for you, you've got 72 hours to watch it. Get your tickets now from kingsplace.co.uk or by clicking the link on our website. And maybe even have your comment read out on the show while hearing all the bits that get cut out of the edit. There's loads. And join in the fun. Finally, the pandemic has hit all of us very hard and we couldn't keep the podcast going without your support via Patreon. If you would like to support us and get loads of little bonus extras by way of thanks, go to patreon.com slash guiltyfeminist. And now, on with the podcast. Please welcome to the stage, Deborah Francis-White and Phoebe Waller-Bridge.
<laughs> She's very much in the building. Are we up there? Oh, we are up there. Yes. Okay. Yeah. I have, you may see on the big screen, I've worn fishnets in honor of Fleabag. I was so tempted just to wear fishnets, agent provocateur, and a trench coat because it's the way she always opens the door. I just thought of it as I was leaving and I was like, oh, it's a bit too late to be going back and doing that. And what if it flaps open? And I just thought, it's not my job to upstage. Um, but I was, I was so tempted, Phoebe, because it's such an iconic costume. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. And thank you so much for presenting us with this wonderful Christmas book, Fleabag the Scriptures. How are you feeling? This is your last gig of the year, you said. Yeah, it feels pretty great. <laughs> Thank you all so much for coming. Oh, my God, this is amazing. Thank you. It's, it feels great. It is great. So this is um, Phoebe Waller-Bridge and Deborah Francis-White in concert. Um, they haven't asked us to sing, but they haven't said we can't sing. So that's our loophole. Um, I asked for a grand piano. I don't know when it will be arriving. Uh, but we're here to have a conversation, a long, lovely conversation, and we have got some questions from you as well about the phenomenon, mostly this Fleabag. Of course, we'll touch on some of the other fabulous projects Phoebe has got going on. Uh, but this book is a real gem. There's some really wonderful things in here that I didn't know, and it's really lovely to have some of these things written out. I'm sure some of these pieces will be read out at weddings now. Uh-oh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm going to read one later that I think is going to be read at weddings, if I have another wedding. <laughs> if my husband's in, of course, I mean to you again. Um, I've got to tell you, Phoebe, I haven't told you this, but Facebook, you know when Facebook flash up, this is what happened five years ago today, and it's generally, you know, some horrible ex-boyfriend you don't want to see again or something like that. But it said, nine years ago today, I met you. No yes. way! There was a picture, I don't know if you remember, I met you in Soho Theatre Bar, and there was a sort of... With I, my ex-boyfriend, so it's actually perfect. It, exactly. <laughs> With your ex-boyfriend, who introduced me, and he said to me, what do you think? And I said, marry her immediately, just marry her. Like, I was just so adamant. I would have done it there and then. But I remember you had a big furry hat, like a big, or somebody did, and we were all wearing it. And a picture of me and that hat came up, and then a picture of you, and I was like, oh my God. So I met you in 2011 today. Oh my God, that's so romantic. I know. This is a love story. It's a love story. <laughs> it's a love story. So this is beautifully, beautifully bookended. Uh, so I want to ask you some things. Uh, firstly, when Fleabag season two ended, I was watching it in my flat, and there was a group of us who'd got together for a viewing party. And when it ended, Nobody said anything for ages, which is really unusual in my flat. We just sat and stared, and we were all quite weepy, but it just the silence went on and on and on. It was so difficult to take in that final scene. Now, if you haven't seen all of Fleabag, there will be a lot of spoilers tonight. And we're starting with the end. Now, before we came out, the hot priest was mentioned. And that last scene is with the hot priest, who you claim you never called the hot priest. No, he's very much priest in the script. Uh, Twitter uh, created hot priest, I believe. <laughs> and uh, you guys did. So 
so thanks for that. Yes. And he, he is a hot priest. In fact, our wonderful interpreters were telling us how they were going oh. to interpret hot priest. Do you just have a look? <laughs> We're going to send Andrew Scott a video of that. Because he was incredibly hot. But that wasn't the point of the last scene, was not how hot he was. I mean, that was always a little bit of the point of every scene he was in, but it wasn't it's the, the point full of point. everything Andrew's in, I think, isn't <laughs> it? But the last scene in which you declare your love for him, and before he can answer, you just say, No, let's just sit. I just want that to sit there. I just want to put it out there. And just that moment of declaring her genuine real love for somebody, her genuine real connection with somebody, and she, it felt like she'd been searching for connection throughout both seasons, and she just wants it to sit there. It doesn't matter what you say, I love you. And then eventually, we're all so desperately hoping that he reaches out for her, of course, because we're romantics. And the line that he says, which I think is one of the greatest lines in television history, is, do you remember? You, what he says, what he says back. It, they know, it'll, it'll pass. It'll pass. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. I remember that actually came to me as just, just as a two lines out of nowhere. I was in my bedroom and I was writing something else and it came to me as a, a separate thing. And I was like, oh, that's good. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and then I kind of put it away. And I just thought it was such a heartbreaking little conversation. And then I remember bringing it back when I was talking to the um, producers on the show and we were talking about the ending. And I said, I have this idea and I've got these couple of lines that I really like. I think they should maybe say something like, I love you, it'll pass. And they just went... <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh God, you forget sometimes that these little notes that you just put down, actually you have to... So that didn't come to you for Hot Priest. That just came to you as something that could be said in response to I love you. Yes. <laughs> Bit and, sad, isn't it? And, <laughs> I, was in, I, was, I was very much in the world of Priest and Fleabag. I was writing Fleabag at the time. But usually when I'm writing one scene, there's always another scene going on in my head. I'm a sort of naturally always rebelling against myself when I'm writing. So I'm writing one thing and the other part of the brain's going, but we want to write this thing. Mm. So it's quite sort of stressful. <laughs> with that one, I was writing, uh, I think, a scene between sisters or something, and then I love you, it'll pass came in, and I was like, I know, wait. I'm just going to write this. <laughs> so it just came to you, and that's, I think that's always the, the most wonderful things in writing that just seem to fall into your hand like rain, and you're not sort of digging a well looking for water, that it just falls upon you. Did you know, ultimately, that her relationship with the priest was one of redemption and evolution, but they weren't going to end up together? No. No. I knew, I just knew the feeling of what they had to be. I really wanted there to be a grown-up love story that just broke our hearts. And so I did know in some ways it was inevitable that they weren't ever going to end up together. And I feel like even writing it and, and showing people the early cuts of it, people already knew that, like, oh, this isn't going to end well. So it was about making the journey as painful as possible, possible. for people. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> um, but I think I always had hope. Uh, writing it, even though I knew in the back of my mind that they couldn't end up, I had hope that they could. And I think that's because they both had hope. But the inevitability of their situations, I think, was always looming. Mm. A story really is a trick in which you introduce the audience to someone until the audience love them, so that when you torture them, the audience care. 
And I think you're really good at this. You're really good at making us love someone and then torturing them in very exquisite, sweet ways that really pull on our heartstrings, but in a way that we feel like it's almost happening to us. Is there any alternative ending in your head that you ever run through between Fleabag and Hot Priest? I mean, privately. Yes. <laughs> yes. Late at night when you're alone. Um, no, I mean, I feel like that well, once we came to that ending and we were shooting it, and I had other ideas, not actually about the priest and Fleabag, but I had other ideas of maybe how to end the show. But when we were filming that, and Harry Bradbeer, um, the director of the show, who was such a huge influence on the whole story, and he felt very, very strongly that it should end with them and then or actually with her at the end and so I did I dabbled around with ideas towards the end but then it just became very very clear that her on her own that was the right thing was the right thing I think it's, it's a lot of self-discipline to do it but I think it was the right thing I think Carrie Bradshaw should have ended up alone and I'm still bitter about it <laughs> um, I read somewhere that Andrew wasn't sure he was going to say I love you that that was left to him was there some debate in that scene whether he was going to say I love you back? Yeah, no, I, no that he felt sure that he should say it and it wasn't in the script. And um, I was debating it and we came to set and he was like, oh, I feel like I should say I love you too. And I was like, I thought about it, but I think it'll pass is kind of his way of saying I love you too. And then Andrew was just like, I'm going to say it. <laughs> and, uh, and I'm so glad he did because, you know, I work really collaboratively with the actors, but when an actor has an instinct that is that strong and it's happened with every cast member at some point across this whole process, but he felt so strongly about it and, you know, he's so articulate, but even then I could just see he was like, he need, I need to say it, he needs to say it, people need to hear him say it. And, and I'm so glad he, he... Because in the end, we didn't get a take without him saying it, because the first time he said it, I was like... <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe it's a good idea. Say it again. <laughs> say it again. <laughs> I think Andrew Scott, the actor, rather than Hot Priest, would worry he'd be a social pariah if he didn't say it, because people would go, what do you mean, it'll pass? And you just left it there on a bus yeah, stop. Yeah, because it'd be sort of brutal. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I feel like he, you know, he wants to be invited to parties. And people may have felt like he's just left you there. I loved that he just turned back and said it because, of course, he loved her. We could see it. And actually, what does it cost you to tell somebody? But it'll pass. It's true. It does pass. Yeah, and that's, I think, the thing that broke my heart so much about the idea of them is that they're actually so honest with each other. Mm. and that is the most honest thing he could say and in some ways it's a gift and when we were talking about it with Andrew um, again I, I wrote that scene before I'd uh, write things quite sporadically so I'll just write the first scene I ever wrote for the priest was the scene in the vestry when he's drunk and trying to get things out of a cupboard and this is before I knew who this character was or I mean I knew he was a priest and I knew he was going to see the camera and I knew certain things but suddenly I was just writing him and then he was talking about Winnie the Pooh and drunk in a vestry and I was like who is this dude <laughs> and um, that scene that final scene came quite early as well and yeah and when he first read it he said gosh that feels so hard but then when we read it out loud there is something generous in how he performs it that it feels like a kind of yeah a gift like it, it'll get better and it does, it really does. I, one of the lovely uh, little treasures that I found in this book, which, by the way, you should buy for everyone you know this Christmas. I know you got a copy with your ticket, but that doesn't stop you buying extra copies <laughs> and leaving them under the tree. 
there's a lovely little bit of treasure that I found in here that you had spoken to a real priest and had lots of conversations. Yeah, Father William. Uh, <laughs> you say that with a light in your Fa- eye. <laughs> Father William. It's so funny. I spoke about him on uh, Irish radio. I only ever call him Father William. But I spoke about him on the Irish radio, and I haven't spoken to him in a while. I just got a text saying, I hear you've been taking my name in vain on Irish radio. I was like, oh, no. He, um, yeah, he... Is he a hot priest? Um, I mean, they're all hot priests, aren't they? Um, but uh, <laughs> he was... He was a huge part of this process, and I was put in touch um, with him by my agent, actually, who knows him as his friend. I needed to talk to a priest who would talk to me openly and with candor about celibacy and about, you know, what happens when you're tempted and what goes through your head, as well as the choices that you make and all that other kind of stuff. And I met one or two who were a bit like... (laughs) And then, like, met me the first time and then watched season one. And were like, I'm not going to meet you again. What are you, what are you doing? Why am I going to speak to you about this? Um, um, but Father William was just such an open-hearted, brilliant, brilliant man who'd found faith, like, later on in his life and spoke about it very openly and was incredibly inspiring and really gave me a perspective, a new perspective on why people reach for certain things in their lives and, and what it can do for you. And uh, he was just so open about it. And being able to talk to him, we had long Skype sessions and, and I felt in some ways that we were both enjoying the conversations because I feel I have a, a reverence around, I have both a reverence and an irreverence around uh, priests because of, you know, in, I don't know, when you're younger, you just sort of, everyone's so proper, you just want to, you know, be mess naughty. Mess them up like, a bit. Yeah, mess them yeah. up, like, you know, I don't know, just be naughty. But also there's a real sense of you have to be proper. And he was saying that he, he experiences that day in, day out, that people suddenly, you know, become proper around him. And actually to have a private conversation, I'm just like, but what happens when somebody asks you this? When do you doubt yourself? You know, you're a constant leader. You're a constant um, like father figure to somebody. That must become exhausting. And when do you, what do you do when you doubt yourself? And he would just talk to me about it. And there are some moments in the in the show that um, come directly from some things that he said. And I found it was really, really moving conversations. And in, I have an f- unusual friend now, which is also a bonus. Yes, you've got a proper priest friend now. He's actually a monk, which I think is even cooler. He's a monk. Oh, <laughs> fancy. Um, in the book, you say that he described his celibacy as a wound. I, mean, I don't know what else to say about that, really. LAUGHTER yeah, he did. And he, he would say he was incredibly articulate and very erudite. And he would drop these things like diamonds. And he just said, he was like, yeah, you know, celibacy is like it's something you think about every day. It's, it's uh, mm. you know, and then he was like, you know, it's like a wound. And then he'd move on. And I'd be like, oh, yes. it's like a wound. Just the solitude of his life and what he gets from that um, versus what he, when he feels isolated and lonely. I mean... Because I was worried about writing a priest for so many reasons, because especially a kind of comedy priest, because it's been done so well before. Mm. But also there are so many ho- like uh, traps you can fall into, especially with Irish Catholic priests. You know, mm. they've been there's like a whole canon of them in comedy, and I really, really wanted this character to have real integrity and to feel real and to feel complex and to represent something really positive about having faith or just a choice and the basic principles of Catholic religion, Christian religion, which is just basically the basic on-the-ground principles, which is be good to people, be kind, think of yourself as equals, and uh, don't kill anyone. 
um, you know, the huge. <laughs> and, uh, and I found that very inspiring. I'm, you know, I'm not religious. But being able to talk to Father William about all that stuff and being like, and me going, do you actually believe in God? <sighs> you know, being able to ask those questions that seemed blasphemous at the time, but, you know, it was amazing. Yes, I think it really comes through in the show that he really believes and he says that the doubt is part of it. It's really, really well drawn. And I think the cleverness of it for the show was in part that uh, Hitchcock said that there's no suspense like delayed coition. If you're waiting for someone to kill somebody in a Hitchcock film, that's never going to be as exciting as waiting for two people to have sex as that sexual tension mounts. And that's exactly what this provided in season two, was this, he can't, but he can't, but he can't, but he can't. And of course, by the time you got there, we wanted it so much. We were so horny for it, really. And <laughs> do you know, funny enough though, Phoebe, I've never told you this, but I've never been sexier than one time when I married two friends, um, not in a thruple way, I was the celebrant. And I happened to have in my wardrobe a sort of, like it was like a long black jacket that had a sort of, like a dog collar style little collar. Same yeah. And I wore a sort of skirt underneath it and stuff like that, you know, a little bit of you know, color in the shoes. Uh, it was a twist, but I did look uh, quite vicary. And men could not stop. Like at the dancing part, they were, and I think it's something about the sacred and profane together. They were kind of just grabbing me. It was before me too. <laughs> so, uh, so I really felt that when I was watching it. I was thinking there is really something very, very sexy about being off the table. Yes, absolutely. Again, it's one of the reasons I was hesitant about the idea of the priest in the first place because I knew I wanted the second season to be about hope when the last one was about cynicism. And I also knew I wanted it to be... If the first season was all about the kind of casual sex, I wanted the second season to be about the power of a single kiss mm. and it to be all the opposites of the first season and having a priest I thought was just so obvious it was like yeah Fleabag fucks a priest it's like um but then when I, I started think any of us saw it coming at all <laughs> I think you were the only one everyone's going to expect obvious. this <laughs> and so I was very hesitant but I knew I wanted it to be about religion for some reason I've been writing notes for a whole year um while I was writing other things kind of Fleabag jokes and things and when I went back to read over it there was just loads of comments on religion and jokes about religion. And it all started because I was in a cafe and I saw, heard this conversation between these two girls. And they were in these like tiny little skirts and they were like, look gorgeous. And they were sort of like 19 and they were like really kind of, mm -mm. and one of them was going, um, I just love the, uh, the New Testament. I just love the New Testament. <laughs> it just really kind of, I don't know, I just think it's like, it's got so much more depth, you know, the other and, um, and they <laughs> were just, I was like, that is brilliant yes because it's just it's so incongruous but also there's something glorious about it and so that's kind of where it started and then I was like okay I've got and I knew I wanted to have a scene of Fleabag in a church I had these images and this final piece in the puzzle it was just begging to create and I knew I wanted her to fall for somebody and I knew I wanted someone to see the camera and all this kind of stuff so the story was just begging for this priest it was just like mm. just write me and I was like mm. you're too obvious and then when I thought about Andrew in the role, then I was like, okay. We're doing this. This guy will fly because oh. it was important that he didn't, that the first time we met him, he wasn't in his priestly garb. We met him as a man first. And he says, I'm a priest. 
and that's the power of it as well. Mm. And she's like, yeah, whatever. No one's a priest at dinner in a shirt. <laughs> and, uh, and actually his calm and his, his sense of um, centeredness in himself is what really jars with her. Mm. And that amazing moment outside where he goes out to join her for a fag and she walks away and he says, well, fuck you then. And she turns back and you just see that's the moment she's in. Uh, oh, it's an exciting moment. And actually that moment... You don't see, because in my head, Fleabag's telling the story. So she's the first person you see in every scene. You never see characters in a room without Fleabag in it. And that's the first time when she exits that you're with a character alone without Fleabag (gasps) for the first time ever. He gets gets a little bit of screen time and you know he's special. Yeah, special, special man. Well, here's something. The very first time I ever saw you perform the first 10 minutes of Fleabag, there was something so confessional about it that it was almost like the audience were your priest. And if any of you saw the live show, there is something confessional. You're sitting on this high stool and you're leaning into the audience almost like we're a therapist or a priest. And I feel like there's been something of it throughout that was just throbbing there. So I think when you say... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so when you say oh it's too obvious it's interesting because I think it's one of those things that it wasn't obvious till we saw it but then I feel it was and I should probably just tell a little bit about this story uh, because the South Bank Centre asked me to I first met Phoebe in 2011 this day 2011 and uh, in 2012 I was doing a storytelling festival and I had an, I just thought it would be fun to get all these different creative, fabulous people that I know and ask them to come along and tell a story, write something specific for this event. And much like you overheard these young women saying, oh, I love the New Testament, I overheard someone on the tube say, oh, she was chancing her arm. And I thought, well, that's a good turn of phrase. What if I commission a load of people? I mean, I say commission very grandly. uh, 50 quid, come along and do it in a basement, the basement of the Leicester Square Theatre, 70 seats. But I rang a few writers and said, would you come and do sort of, you know, like a 10-minute monologue on the theme of chancing a rum? And I rang Phoebe, and we're so unreliable narrators about what happened. What do you think happened, Phoebe? All I remember was going, no, that really scares me because I don't do stand-up. And you said it was all comedians. And then you said that I could sit down. <laughs> and I was like, keep talking. <laughs> and then I remember saying, like, oh, no, no, it's sort of too scary. And then we had the conversation about, but well, I have to do it because it's scary. I have a very similar version of this story. But uh, Phoebe, in my version of the story, uh, says, oh, I'm not sure. I think you weren't performing your own writing yet. And I didn't know you were writing, but I just knew you were a writer, but you were writing and you were sending it off to people. And you came onto the stage. I remember we did get a stool, um, that same high stool, really, that you see in the West End show. We did get that stool, especially for you, because everyone else stood up. And Phoebe said, I'm not doing stand-up. And so it's technically not stand-up if you're sitting down. And I do remember, I remember you were in a red, I've got a picture of you in a red top with a white Peter Pan collar, which was very demure. And then you kind of leant forward on the stool and started talking about this slutty little pizza that you'd eaten and said she wanted to be in me so bad. And oh, and it was so wonderful watching you objectify food the way men sometimes objectify us. 
and being so happy about it. And it, we were so thrilled. And I still don't know to this day why you went on last, because you headlined the gig, even though you were the one that said you were outside your comfort zone, but you did. And you just smashed it. Like, everyone just went, this has to be a full-length show. And before we knew it, like, most people would say, oh, yeah, I'll do a full-length show in Edinburgh and not do it. But you actually did. And before we knew it, you were in Edinburgh and you were being reviewed by broadsheets. And next thing we knew, there was a television show. Um, it was an absolutely extraordinary whirlwind, and I take no credit whatsoever because I'm sure it would have come out of you anyway because it was raging inside of you. But do you remember anything else about how you wrote that first 10 minutes? Yeah, I remember realising because I had a theatre company and we were asking new writers to write short plays for us that were about 10 minutes long on a monthly basis, I sort of thought maybe I should put my... I mean, not my money where my mouth was, um, but I suppose... My, yeah, there was no money then. There was no Neither money in it money. then, no. no. Um, but I just thought I should have a go. And I've always, I just had this kind of annoying feeling that I wanted to. And I had done a few under a pseudonym for that company. But had you? Yeah. Under, you hadn't said it was your name. And no. Oh. No. Um, I was too nervous. And then, uh, so I wrote this thing and I felt nervous about doing it. But I showed my best friend, Vicky Jones, who'd ended up directing the stage play. He was a theatre director at the time and is now a writer as well. And... I showed her the first sort of few lines and she was like, this is great. And we were rehearsing another play at the time and I said, I'm writing this thing and I'm going to do it at Deborah Singh. And she was like, we don't have time for you to be frivolous. We're rehearsing other things. And um, I was like, I said yes. And she's giving me 50 quid. And, um, and It's a lot of money back then for But us. then I decided to write the whole thing, the whole little 10 minutes just to make Vicky laugh. And that has been such a useful trick for me as a writer. I was like, if I make Vicky laugh, I'm going to invite Vicky, I'm going to make her laugh, and Slutty Pizzas will make her laugh, and Wanking Over Obama and Zac Efron will make her laugh. and Because you know, I knew it was the kind of things that we normally laugh about together anyway. <laughs> and I wanted it to have a kind of like darker ending, and I thought of the same thing. It was like, I just want to make Vicky cry at the end as well. And the end of the, the 10 minutes, <laughs> the end of the 10 minutes is just her ending up on the doorstep of her dad's house, listing all the things that she is scared that she might be. And Vicky laughed and Vicky cried. And so it was just a, it was a great uh, achievement from that point of view. And I was happy with that. And then this absolutely hammered girl came up to me at the end. And this changed my life. And we were there with my producer, Francesca Moody, and Vicky. And she came up and she was like, that was so fucking funny. You've got to take that to Edinburgh. You've got to take it to Edinburgh. And, uh, and I was like, yeah, yeah, okay. She was like, you've got to. And, um, and I was like, okay. And then uh, Francesca and Vicky then said, actually, that's not a bad idea. We should do that. And then the next day, Francesca, who takes things up to Edinburgh every year, she contacted the underbelly and sent off that 10-minute thing. And they wrote back saying, we'll give you a slot. So really, it's, you know, it's this amazing gang of uh, collaborators and friends that I have, you know, really pushing me and so she just called me and said we're doing what the drunk girl prophesied we should do <laughs> do you know who and, the drunk girl um, was to this day i do yeah oh i do oh, every God, time was... i see her i told her every time i see her, she forgets every time i see her i'm like you it are wasn't... the reason that everything happened for me it wasn't like, me was it no it wasn't you oh, no, it wasn't you <laughs> You're um, another reason that everything happened for me. But, um, and then having a deadline and having that space booked, and we were this small group of, you know, wannabe theatre makers, and then we just thought, damn it, let's just take a play up. And thank God you did. Um, 
there's something in the book that I'd love you to read because I feel like it answers a question that I've always wanted answered. And here it is in this treasure trove of a book. The book, by the way, I mean, it's called The Scriptures and it looks a lot like the Bible. It looks like something you'd find in your hotel bedside table. <laughs> I know, I have thought of swapping out Bibles oh. for flea bags when I go, when I've been traveling. Wherever you go, you just pop one in where the Gideons, yeah. where the Gideons are. So this is a little bit of a testament. Phoebe, would you be up for reading it? So this is answering the question, who is Fleabag? I was 27 and in a cynical spiral. Convinced my work and my brain carried less value than my desirability, a rage grew in me at the invisible lectures I felt I was getting all the time about how to be a woman, how to be a feminist, that the world measured a female's worth only by her desirability. I read an article once that said a woman's prime was at age 25, because that is when she was considered her most sexually attractive. I was 24 when I read that, so I was like, shit, better get on it. Um, <laughs> that's not in this, this bit. Uh, <laughs> everywhere I looked, there were inexplicably naked women on posters on the tube, adverts for toothpaste, dog food. Someone would have their tits out. Porn was something that people gorged on rather than dabbled with. We were becoming numbed by it, and I was teetering on the edge of a depression. From there, I looked down into the abyss, and at the bottom of it was Fleabag looking up at me in lipstick. Her attitude, her humor, her ability to sum a person up and eviscerate them with a single brutal insight is what drove me to write her. She said the unsayable, but to me it was the truth, albeit bent with cruelty. She was in her custom-tailored coat of pain wrapped around a broken heart. Quite pleased with that, man. <laughs> um, <laughs> the bitter author of her own tragedy. It was her fault. She couldn't complain. She couldn't blame it on anyone. She didn't feel sorry for herself, and she didn't attribute her flaws to any one event or ordeal that she had experienced. One day, she woke up with an audience watching her, so she did the only thing she could. She put on a show. That's a really beautiful piece of writing, as we have come to expect. Uh, something that really strikes me about Fleabag is that it, it was written in 2012, 2013, around that era. And that was a time when the movement of feminism started moving again, I think. Uh, it was the time of Chimamanda, We Should All Be Feminists, Malala, uh, Katna Moran came out with How to Be a Woman, Bridget Christie did a bit for her. And it was just a time when it felt like Feminism was coming back into the mainstream. And of course, there have always been hardworking feminists throughout the decades, but it felt like it was coming back into conversations between women in coffee shops. And at lunch, suddenly, we were talking about feminism rather than just talking about our own careers. And I feel like Fleabag has a real place there, but it's like she's this iconoclastic, countercultural feminist. I couldn't work out what it was, and I had to write the forward for the play, and I suddenly realized what it was, that I feel like she is the human being deep down inside the woman when a woman gets to put down like, the luggage of gendered expectations. Because all we can do as women is live up to gendered expectations or defy them. And both of those are exhausting. 
Every day having to get up and look like a woman and, and act like a woman and be ladylike. Or to go, I'm not that, I'm not that. Look at me not being that. I'm the other thing. I'm another thing. And it's like Fleabag just almost doesn't see it. She just knocks it all off the table. And it's, she's just the human being, at the, like the center of the volcano, that is libidinous and wants attention and craves connection and is hungry, all the time hungry. And she's crying out for the things that the human soul wants rather than almost laboring herself with things that women are meant to want. Did you feel that when you were writing it? Or can you speak to the humanity inside Fleabag? Thanks. <laughs> that was major. <laughs> it's a really good um, piece of work. I wasn't really thinking about her as a... Of course, I was thinking about her as a woman in certain ways, but really when I was writing her, I was just writing someone I wanted to play. A character I wanted to play was the first impetus. And then when I realised how fun it was to say the things that I say personally with my friends, and we don't sit around talking about the fact that we're women all the time. That'd be so creepy. We'd immediately assume that someone in that group wasn't one. They were like, yeah, we're all... Um, and that was how I was feeling when I was writing it. You know, after... There were certain moments where I wanted to hit it, like when they go to the feminist lecture and they're suddenly made aware that they're women and whether or not they're good feminists or bad feminists. But the rest of the time, I just felt like her lipstick, her hair and her coat were the three consistent things that reminded uh, the world that she was in control and that she was feminine. And outside of that, the rest of it was just this person, this like character, obviously. For me, the role of the camera was also about that feeling of always being witnessed and that pressure of being witnessed. And when you've got your lipstick on and your hair and everything's ready, and then there's this thing, whether it's society or whether it's God or whoever it is, because that's how I imagined it sort of, there's an equivalent for the priest, he has the same feeling, that that pressure is what's driving her to perform. And I feel like, I don't want to speak for all you guys, but I feel like so much of everyday life is about a really subtle performance that we've all managed to um, perfect. And, well, thank you. Um, and this pressure on you the whole time and sometimes when that mask slips like with Fleabag sometimes she wanted the camera not to be there and it doesn't move and that's when everything feels panicky and when you feel like you're losing control and that's when I felt like they were her human moments because the rest of it was just you know everyday bullshit that we do all the time and, and that was what was exciting to me is what happens when you put that much pressure on a person all day, every day and they have their secrets and their traumas, like everybody does. And if you've got that relentless thing on you all day, those things will eventually reveal themselves. And that's in the end why she sort of had to say goodbye, because she'd revealed her full self and was like, I got nothing else for you now. So it was more, she was always more of a person. I, wasn't, I didn't go out politically thinking, like, I'm going to write a feminist piece. But I think what happened in that year, particularly in Edinburgh, is that feminism got really funny again mm. it has cycles of it but I remember that year at Edinburgh there were so many funny shows where women had just gone oh fuck off <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and everyone was like yay like, yeah. audiences were just so relieved it's helpful if feminism is entertaining there's an amazing I'm a feminist but that I just saw in uh, season two where 
I mean, it's not phrased as an I'm a feminist but, but I thought it was a brilliant one, where she goes to the Quaker meeting with the hot priest, some man standing up talking about something. You're only meant to stand up and speak if you're compelled, and she thinks she's not going to, and then she finds herself being basically pushed up, and she's like, what am I going to say? What am I going to say? And then she says, sometimes I wonder if I'd be such a feminist if I had bigger tits. <laughs> But I think that... <laughs> but I think that it's a given that she's a feminist. I hope that that's what comes through, is that she's constantly grappling with the fact that it's a given that she's a feminist, and then sometimes her brain challenges that for her, and that's her biggest fear, is that mm. she would be betraying feminism for men and women everywhere. She'd be, like, just by having that thought that she just thought she had a better rack. <laughs> and, you know, you can be... you can. You can have all that at the same time. You can't have it all at the same time, obviously. <laughs> but you can think all those things at the same time. And I felt that so profoundly all the time. And be able to write a character who could say, I am a feminist, but I'd also like a better rack. was just a relief. Mm. Absolutely. <laughs> to say that. To say it. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. That Quaker room, there's another story in the book as well, but that, again, Andrew is completely responsible for that Quaker hall meeting um, scene because when I first met him for this role I did a play with him 10 years ago and when I came up with the idea of him being in it and I asked him for a coffee and I hadn't seen him in ages and I was very nervous to see him because I was going to pitch this idea and he's so cool and lovely and I just thought the worst thing is that he's going to go like this is really awkward Phoebe can we just pretend this never happened <laughs> and uh, I took him to the Soho Theatre where we'd done our original play to try and make him you know feel all comfortable and disarmed and uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I just said, I, want, I desperately want you to play this character. This is who he is. This is what he does. And this is what I want to talk about. And Andrew was just instantly... The moment I said it's a love story, he was like, I want to play love. I want to do a love story. Aww. And then he said, I want to play that, which I thought was such a beautiful thing to say. And then we were talking about uh, religion and faith. And we started walking around Soho. And he said to me, come with me for a second. I want to take you somewhere. And we'd already been talking for like two hours. And he took me into the Quaker Hall. And we walked in and sat down, and there was no one else in there. But we sat down, and we talked for another like hour, an hour and a half, maybe two hours, about you know, faith, religion, sex, relationships, family, like everything. And then by the end of it, I mean, someone came in, so we had to be like... <laughs> <laughs> um, Imagine being the person walking in. <laughs> And we were sat at the opposite end, like actually in the same kind of positions. And then we left the Quaker Hall and he turned around to me and he went, I want to do it. And I was like, Ugh. And then the production didn't tell us that they'd found us the same Quaker Hall. They told us it was somewhere else. And so when we got out of our cars in the morning and we were like, yay! And it was just this magical little thing that he, yeah, another part of it that he, he brought to it. I mean, you can see the chemistry between you and the connection between you and you can feel that there's something really kinetic going on. When you set out to tell this story and as it developed over those two seasons, how important was that theme of loneliness and connection for you? Because it feels like it's this 
beating heart. And I think all the best shows seem like they're about one thing, but really they're about another. So the top line is Fleabag, when it first came out, you know, there's that initial scene where she's having sex with a guy and then do I have a massive asshole? All of that stuff, which was so fun and naughty and shocking and, you know, in the best way, scandalizing in the best way. But actually, it's really about connection and loneliness. And I think that's why it's taken off because nothing that's just fun and scandalizing really does have that longevity and that deep love. You know, it's not going to fill out the Royal Festival Hall, if you see what I mean. How important was that idea of trying to find connection through sex and through family for you as you were writing about it? Oh, it was everything. It was everything. Because I think everyone knows what it feels like to be lonely and they know what that abyss feels like. And it's a very frightening feeling. And I think watching people... Uh, convincing each other that they're not lonely is really heartbreaking, especially when it's family or people who are falling in love but can't admit that to each other. And I think, for me, what Fleabag is trying to do every time she makes a joke, every time she tries to tease her sister, is to connect with her. And she just misfires every time. But I think that's her attempt all the time. So it's less about someone being acerbic and like, I don't care about the world. It's constant offerings Mm. of like, play with me, play with me. Tell me I'm not alone. Convince me I'm not alone. And she's up against people who are also so, you know, brittle and frightened themselves that they don't know how to do it back. And that kind of uh, misfire just completely breaks my heart Mm. to watch. And so loneliness is always at the heart of it. And also that she lost her best friend, who was the person that made her feel understood and that nobody did understand her after Boo had died. And that actually she's lost sight of who she was because she's in part responsible for it. It's not just guilt, but yeah, loneliness is a huge part of it. And I think through both seasons, I hope that's palpable in all all the characters. Yes, that they're all kind of striving to connect with each other. And when they have those moments of connection, we really feel it and we love it. The second season begins with this as a love story. And we think, oh, this might be a love story between Fleabag and Hot Priest. And it is, to a certain extent, but it's also a love story between Fleabag and Claire, her sister. And I think it really speaks to how we can have fallings out with our best female friends and our sisters and our mums and come back together. And actually, those relationships are a lot more like love affairs than we ever really let on. Platonic love affairs. But they are like love affairs. If you fall out with your best friend or you go through a rocky patch where you feel disconnected, it can be much more devastating than when that happens with a boyfriend or a girlfriend. Do you feel like the love story between you and Sean's character, Claire, was a beating heart of that second season? How was that to write and to act? That was the storyline I could not wait to write. And even when I was thinking about coming back and doing a second season but wasn't sure if there was anything there, the main thing that was going on in my head is I just want to see Sean act more (laughs) as Claire and just generally because I just love I just she just transforms into this character and I could watch Claire forever the way that Sean performs her I mean she's just extraordinary and so knowing also that Fleabag's very much in the center of the story in the first season and knowing that we could actually relax it and give her more to do and give her more of a journey was a really big incentive and then also that story just because they love each other and they drive each other mad but they love each other and watching two people who love each other not being able to say Mm. I love you 
is another kind of painful thing that I like putting audiences through. <laughs> because even when I'm writing it, I'm like, just say it. And actually the problem is, to me, the problem is that Claire is not as brave as Fleabag in those moments to go. Um, she's, been, she's been braver in her own way, that she's got her life back together since the mother's death. And she has created this castle around her, this kind of fort. And she said, no one comes in, no one goes out. And this is how it works. And it's usually because, it's usually just the metaphor of she's always got a coat on, you know, or like mm. talking about a coat. <laughs> um, and, and I just felt like that Fleabag's constant attempts to push her sister, like in, in the first episode, the awful thing that happens when she has that miscarriage is in some ways, in some, uh, in, in some twisted way, the best thing that happened to those two sisters because mm. they could finally just drop everything. And the idea that you can have years of like minor little gripes for somebody and then something like that happens and it just all falls away in an instant and you're like no I'm here I'm your foundation I'm your sister and nothing else matters let's go and that's a romance that is worth telling over and over the line that absolutely devastated me <laughs> right full applause break uh, the line that absolutely devastated me and really made me sob, and actually I couldn't even talk about it without crying for quite a long time afterwards, was when Claire... I'm going to probably just pull myself together. When Claire turns to Fleabag, when Fleabag's saying, go and get this guy, the Scandinavian Claire, um, and why don't you go? You know, he's gone to the airport. You know, you should run to the airport for him like in a romantic comedy. And Claire says to Fleabag, you're the only person I'd run through an airport for. Oh, it just broke my heart. Because it's true. It's so true that, you know, I have close female friends and sisters who I would run through an airport for before I'd run through an airport for any man. Sorry, Tom. Um, he'll be fine. He doesn't want me running through an airport for it. But it, it's, there's a heart to that and an understanding to that about the frequency on which female friendships and sisterly relationships operate that is very rarely explored. And your sister wrote the very beautiful score for Fleabag. And season two is just... <sighs> I was actually talking about Izzo's work recently on Radio 3 on a show about classical music. And I, said, I described her music as surgical because it just reaches inside of you like a surgeon is pulling something out of you. Talk about how it was working with your sister on something as evocative as the music. Um, well, it's just brilliant. Get to work with your sister. But also, I think what you were saying about it's surgicals and the music gets into you like that is because that's where it comes from in her. She really can do that. And I remember when we were talking about this series, uh, about the second, because the first series, we hardly wanted any music, and when we did, it had to be very um, specific. So the titles for the first season were just a kind of like... Um, which were two pieces of music that Izzo wrote that she then layered on top of each other to make that strange sound. I didn't want it to be manipulative in any way, that you couldn't read what the music was trying to tell you. Mm. Um, and then it, there was like one or two other cues in the series. And then so in this series, we were just like, let's go to town. Um, and 
it was amazing because what Izzo had done is she wrote all this incredible choral music on a shoestring budget, having been given references for like 100 piece orchestras and choirs. I was like, like that. Um, she was like, fuck you. And, um, <laughs> but then she did. She came back, she had six singers and then a boy choir. And she wrote this incredible piece of music that we tried to fit into the first episode. And it felt almost right, but not, it wasn't quite, uh, quite the right fit. So we put that to the side. And then Izzo composed this other incredible piece of music for the beginning. And then we realized that the piece that she had composed for episode one, that just came out of her like, whoa, fit perfectly over the scene where Fleabag and the priest kiss in her apartment. But to the extent that there was no editing of the music or the screen that needed to be done, it was so unbelievable that our editor, Spooky. Gary and Izzo, have a kind of like magic thing going on anyway. And he was like, let's just take this from the bin, which is a, ni- is a nice thing. The bin is a nice thing in the edit. <laughs> Sounds like you put it in the bin, you put it in like the reserve. And he took that out and put it on that scene. And the scene wasn't working and it wasn't working and it wasn't working. And I was like, I don't know why it's not connecting. And then he put Izzo's piece of music over it and it fit perfectly. We never touched it again. It just went poof. And um, just this instinctive thing that uh, she manages to write from her gut and write the subtext of a character or two characters sometimes at the same time. Their emotions without it feeling manipulative. And I think that's such a hard thing to do. And I still feel like when I hear the music that plays over what happened in the Neil scene, I mean, she... (laughs) So I'm just like, oh. Um, But that, again, that was in the edit when that, we were all sort of going, oh, God, that moment sort of... um, And then Izzo put these extraordinary, like, adult singers just, like, throwing their, like, absolute hearts, vaginas, genitals at this song. And actually, the words that they're singing are actually really rude words in ancient Greek. Are they? Yeah. Are they? Yeah. They're really rude. What do they mean? (laughs) Um, Oh, Izzo, I don't know if I should say. (laughs) She's here. Izzo, is it okay No, the best thing is there was a woman on Twitter. Incredible. There was a woman on Twitter who said, who must be the only woman who watches Fleabag and knows ancient Greek, (gasps) when... Guys, has anyone else noticed that uh, that's what they're singing? And these are things you wouldn't necessarily um, notice to listen to, but you feel... No, but we'll look them up now. (laughs) But you'd feel is that it's a boy choir at the beginning of the show and the voices mature as the show goes on. And it's like those kind of details that just completely transform your viewing experience. But, you know, ideally you don't notice it when you're watching it, but you feel it. And I think Mm. so much of this heart just came from the music. And I've seen that the sheet music is in the back of the book. Yeah. So if you have anybody musical in your family, buy this book for them for Christmas and make them play it for you on Christmas Day. Hi there, this is Tom, the producer of the podcast, with a quick message from our friends at Refugee Community Kitchen in Calais. They are desperately need of volunteers who can come out for two weeks or more. No cooking experience is necessary, just a willingness to learn and get stuck in. They'll teach you everything you need to know from prep to cooking to serving. Go to refugeecommunitykitchen.com slash volunteer to sign up. That link's also in the show notes. And they can provide all of the needed documents that you need to come over, but do also contact info at refugeecommunitykitchen.org if you have any questions. Please, please, please do consider volunteering for this. It would make all the difference in the world. And now, 
back to the podcast. So we should do some questions from the audience. Um, let me ask you, uh, what advice do you have for a young woman trying to work in writing? This is from Sophie. Sophie, where are you? Hi. Hello, Sophie. Uh, do you have any advice for Sophie or anybody else? Is there anyone else trying to work in writing? You're Sophie. I'm Sophie and says so my wife. There's lots of Sophies in the audience. Do you have advice for any Sophies trying to work in writing? <laughs> this is just for Sophies. Um, you've got to find your own, the way that it comes out well for you. But for me, the things that changed my life were finding collaborators who would, or just friends whose taste you trust, who will read stuff, because I think handing it over and asking someone to read it is the hardest thing, because it's so vulnerable-making. And if you can find somebody that you give it to, sometimes... I ask only if people get bored or confused. You know, if, I just, if I'm too nervous about if, if, whether you like it or not, or if you like the characters, just handing something over and saying, are you bored by anything or are you confused by anything, which is the two things you must never do to an audience. Mm. And that's a kind of nice, easy way in. Also, just write and write and write and write and write. Just write as much as you can. And then show someone and then read it again and see if you can make it better or get someone to read it out loud for you. That really, really, really changed it for me. I always make actors. I just sort of say, if, if we yeah. make you supper, well, Tom will make the supper. I'll make cocktails and introductions. Yeah. And then will you read it out aloud? Because also actors have a perspective and they'll go, but why is my character doing this? Because she said this before. Yeah. Because they're seeing it from that person's point of view. It's so helpful to get people to act it out. And they don't have to be you know, great actors. can be mates who just you know, are happy to read something out. But also, just don't worry about knowing the whole story when you're writing something down because sometimes your own subtext will be writing stuff. So just write like a blurb of whatever you, you're thinking and feeling. And then that's what I did with the first feedback and then wrote all the things up and put them all on post-its and then read in between the lines really and discovered that in between the lines of all these anecdotes was a very sad, horny woman. Um, and that's how the story revealed itself. I think going in going, I need to know the whole story. And sometimes the story will reveal itself. You write in bed, don't you? Yeah, so do I. Mm. Yeah, I just... I'm, Why wouldn't you? I mean... <laughs> I don't know. Why would you sit up if you could lie down? <laughs> Absolutely right. In my pyjamas, propped up in bed, and it's always the best stuff. Uh, so this is from Steph. She says, I too went to St. Augustine's in Ealing in the 1990s. However, I am a so far unsuccessful writer. <laughs> do you ever think back to those days? Did you ever get up to no good around the nuns? <laughs> And how does uh, and has this bled again? into sexy priest? Steph. Steph. She, so Steph, just give us a cheer, Steph. Do yeah. you, do you were you a contemporary of Phoebe's? Oh. No way. I wish I could see you. Um. <laughs> she said she hasn't aged well. <laughs> I don't believe it. I'm sure you have, Steph. Um, I remember, yeah, well, actually, the images of... I, I'd, I'd not gone to a Catholic. That was the first and only Catholic school I'd, I'd gone to. Um, went to a handful of schools. <laughs> uh, but I do remember walking through the corridors and there being massive crucifixes everywhere and these really stark corridors and being a bit like, oh, it's a bit much. <laughs> For like between maths and English to be like, there's like dying 
bleeding guy on the wall. And I know you're supposed to remember what he did for us and everything the whole time, but I was like, every trip to the loo, you're like, I'm sorry, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Sorry, sorry, sorry. sorry, sorry, sorry. sorry. And, and that felt sort of, I really remember walking, and it was quite even cinematic in my memory, like you'd walk under a, when he'd be looking at you like this. And, um, and yes, the nuns, I, there was only one nun left when I was there, clinging on. Um, <laughs> But I remember writing, uh, when I got there, I had a friend, and she was very mischievous. And we wrote, I can't remember why, but we wrote sex on legs in Tipex on our, the heels of our shoes. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and we got in a bit of trouble for that. <laughs> but it's this brilliant moment when they say, can you stand up, can you come to the front of the class, can you please read what was on the back of Panima's oh shoes? <laughs> So did you have to read in front of the whole class, sex on legs? Yes. And then how, what happened then? I can't really remember. Then we had to go to somebody else's office um, and say it again. <laughs> and, uh, and then I think no one really knew what to do because we couldn't go around with no shoes and we couldn't take off the things. So everyone was a bit like, just don't write that on anything else. <laughs> uh. Do you think that bled into Fleabag season two, that whole sort of Catholic iconography and sort of the latent sex underneath all of that dying Jesus? Yeah, I think the moment you're expected to be proper or there are rules mm -hmm. is when it gets exciting. Um, so true. I remember my mum telling me when I first went to the previous school I was at, she said, now darling go to this school, it's my first term at secondary school, and she said, if you behave impeccably for the first term, you can do whatever the fuck you want for the rest of the time <laughs> at school. And I remember thinking, that is genius. Oh. And she was absolutely right, because I did. I was like, prefect. I was like, woo. And then you're, but you're still cool, because you're telling your mates the whole time, this is part of a plan. It's part of a greater <laughs> plan. Don't worry. And you do get away with everything. And I think that's part of... Um, how I've been approaching writing as well. It's like, make it look like one thing and then actually like, oh, do something else. So establish a reputation amongst the nuns for being very good. Hmm. And then after that, anything, they won't, firstly, they won't think, if you're not there, they'll think you're doing something very good. But also, if you do get into trouble, it's an aberration from a good girl like you, as opposed to, you've been troubled since go, you walked through the door. I mean, it's Phoebe. <laughs> we'll let her off, you know, she's been good for the rest of the, and then slowly they'll work out that it's actually only was a term. <laughs> like, Your mother is a fantastic person. influence, isn't she? Yeah, yeah, You amazing. said at the, uh, when you won, I think, was it a BAFTA? You said that she said, darling, you can be anything as long as you're outrageous. <laughs> yes. What an amazing woman. Yeah. Um, Felicity asks, after the success of Fleabag, how do you cope with the pressure of living up to it in your future writing? This is a this is a no-pressure question. Thank you. How are you going to live up to it, Phoebe? How? 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 You've already done Killing Eve, uh, which was absolutely incredible. Aww. Thank you. Thanks. That was the story of two women who were, again, very kinetically charged, magnetically mm. drawn. How was it writing Killing Eve? That was an adaptation, so that was a different experience. And Luke Jennings, who wrote the novellas... Um, that was a really exciting collaboration because it was all on the page and yet he was very open to any thoughts and ideas I had and things that I'd, I would have thought to have been nervous about. Like, I wanted to change... So Carolyn Martin, who's Fiona 
Shaw's character was originally a man called Richard. And, you know, I call up Luke and I'm a bit nervous saying, can this be, you know, and he's like, yes, go, 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 go. He was just, and he saw Fleabag, the play, um, when he was deciding who should adapt uh, Killing Eve. And I know that he met, uh, I don't, I'm not sure if he met, but he, he was reading these like really big, serious like drama writers. And then he came to Soho Theatre and saw me go like, <laughs> it's Fleabag. <laughs> and he was like, yes. And we met afterwards and he was in the foyer and he said I wrote Killing Eve and can I oh, Villanelle is it called and can, can we go for a falafel and <laughs> and I said well well yes of course yeah I mean because I'd read the books by then and I was sort of uh, deciding and I met Luke and I just was so excited to work with him and these characters and to, you know I mean I just it was a joy to to write it was very hard adapting something like that as well and it always being from two people's point of view mm. I thought would make it easier because Fleabag is only ever from Fleabag's point of view but it had its challenges but then you get you know those actors and you're just like a lot of the time it's like I just want to see Fiona Shaw do that or say that <laughs> you know yes <laughs> a lot of the inspiration comes Absolutely. from that and she did that amazing turn for you in Fleabag as well where she was the counsellor absolutely brilliant where she was saying don't make any jokes because uh, they might get misinterpreted in the space. Uh, and it was just so deadpan. Such a, it, it must be just glorious working with her. She is one of the greatest actresses of she the, is, this or looks, any other generation. Yeah, because it looks like she's doing nothing at all. It looks, I mean, she can do nothing and everything at the same time. And so for that counsellor character who has no backstory, no context, she's just moisturising her forearms. Mm. That's all we know about her when she comes in. And there's no question from Fiona, like, why is she, you know, Fiona's like, yes, I understand. <laughs> I can do that. And Kristen Scott Thomas as well. Oh, my God, that oh, yeah. scene. That's one of the greatest scenes in television history, in my opinion, <laughs> where Kristen Scott Thomas just goes to town on how patronising it is to get, you know, an award for being a woman, and then she's ranting about things, and she suddenly says, menopause is glorious. Yeah. She stopped being a factory. Yeah. Um, did that come out of a conversation you'd had with anyone, or were you just imagining how great the menopause might be? <laughs> I, um, I'd heard so many horror stories about the menopause quite late in life. I don't remember anyone teaching me about the menopause at school. Maybe they did, but I don't remember it being a kind of an event. And then when I was learning about it, I was like, this is a monumental thing that happens to women. And it's just not really been spoken about. And then I would read into it, and all the stories are like, and then your pelvis disintegrates. <laughs> and your skin slides off your body onto the floor. And everybody thinks you're disgusting <laughs> and, and actually when I was really looking around at the women in my friends and the family and the women in my life like that's not true <laughs> there's like a whole other thing that happens mm. post-menopause a liberation and, yes of having to of, constantly live up to again these gendered expectations that you see women tend to just throw the bag down and yes, go and I don't have to of, do this anymore sort of freedom and mm. so it was just that thing of what you read and what you see there was just a you know a difference there but I did speak to a friend years ago, June, who's 80, and she said that the hardest thing for her about getting older, she was about late 70s, about 80 at the time, she said was that people stop flirting with you. And I just really saw her then in that moment, because she, mm. like, she was like, I just love a flirt. She was mm. like, love, life's just about a bit of a flirt, you know? <laughs> and when, she was like, and when people start patronizing you, when flirtations stop becoming like, hey, who are you? And start going, hello. 
Leo. Who are you? Uh, or yeah. the like generous flirt, which is, you know, those people who are like, oh, don't worry, I'll take her, I'll give her, you know. And she's just yeah. like, oh, it's so gross. And um, so I thought a lot about that. And, uh, and so she, and that was years ago that we had that conversation. It really stayed with me. And then reading about the menopause. And then, but I started writing Belinda, this character. And then she just, because I wanted her to be, I, I know so many glorious women of that age in their 50s and I don't mean I mean that that word sincerely like they have glory they change the energy in a room my mum being one of them and just seems to get brighter and brighter and and you know and more free and fun and it just was just pissing me off that (laughs) you don't see as many of them on screen and so when Belinda came out I just wanted to hang out with Belinda and so did Fleabag Fleabag wanted to really hang out with Belinda yeah Um, yeah they had a really lovely snog yeah. Which was uh, it's sadly no further consummated. Well, she was um, tired. She was tired. Just tired. She'd had enough. And also Bond. Can you tell us anything about Bond? Did he Bond, 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 Bond? I can tell you the ending. Oh! <laughs> okay, everyone agree not to tweet. Lean in. What happens? I'm not going to tell you the ending. I know. Um, that was. <laughs> she wasn't going to tell us the ending. You didn't really want to know. No. Um, yeah, what, uh, what do you want to know? Did you spend much time with Daniel Craig? Uh... <laughs> okay, all the good stuff. Yeah. Yes, we did. I did spend time with Daniel Craig. But it was a really mad job to get because it's one of those things when you think, and I actually said to my producer once when we were making Fleabag, I was just like, that would be a cool thing to do. One day, can you imagine doing something like that? And then it was only a month later that wow. that, yeah. that the call came. Yeah. And does your phone go? It did that day. Strangely, yeah. When they ring, it must have been a weird conversation because I don't remember another woman being asked to come in and collaborate on the Bond script ever. I mean, maybe that's happened, but I don't remember it. I think in the very first Bond film there was, but it hasn't since. But again, that didn't really come into the conversation. That's only really the press that have made that a thing in terms of me being a woman. And, you know, you can see it's like a, it's, it's the button pressy kind of thing. But actually, the reality was is that I got a call from Barbara and Daniel saying, you know, we like your work. Will you come in and help us? There wasn't ever really a conversation about, can you come and help with the ladies? Because it was like, <laughs> it's like, they're not like, <laughs> they're, they're proper like they're amazing producers and writers and I was like, like they're not suddenly they're reduced to like those people um, so they were like no we just um, you know we've got a bunch of writers we like your take would you come on board and like help us polish the script and the characters were there the story was there it was just really exciting to be a part of it and to work with Carrie the director and there was a bunch of writers on it I have a small uh, contribution to this will we be able to thing. tell what's yours when we see it on the screen do you think <laughs> I don't know. I have no idea. The thing is, I, I left long before it finished um, filming as well, and they're, they're rewriting all the time. So I, I hope so. I hope there will be bits. But also, ideally, it will be so seamless. Yes. That you won't know. But secretly, yeah, I'm really hoping you can. It, <laughs> I hope at least once Bond just looks to camera and goes... Is there anything you would not write about, Shani asks... Any subjects that you think are taboo? No. Claire asks, <laughs> what would Fleabag's Christmas Day itinerary be? Um, change all the names on everyone's presents. Um, <laughs> eat whatever was left over for Santa. 
I think Fleabag would give the godmother one of her own paintings wrapped up <laughs> that she'd stolen. Isaac asks, has your creativity changed since visibility and success? Has your creative process or style changed? Has anything about it changed? What happens when you get this kind of success? Do you then start thinking, oh, how do I write again? A bit like when you're walking across the stage and you think, how do I walk? Does that ever happen? Um, or have you got more confidence and just gone, fuck it, I can do whatever I like now? Or neither of those? <laughs> sort of a mixture. I'd love to give a definitive answer to that. But I've kept the same people around me, the same creative people mm. around me, and that really makes a difference. And I'd say I've become more confident, but I really think that's um, also to do with the shorthand that I now have with these people and the confidence we have as a group. And I'm talking about Jenny Robbins, who was my story producer on Killing Eve and on Fleabag. And so if I'm in a room with Jenny, I don't feel intimidated. I feel intimidated by wanting to get the story right and wanting it to be the best thing ever. I will always want it to be the best thing ever, always want it to be better than... I mean, the th next thing I do in my head has to be as impactful or better than Fleabag. It just has to be. Because that's the transaction you make with your audience, don't you? You know, you say, I promise I'll move you and make you laugh and hopefully distract you for, from death for a while. <laughs> well, you know, after Fleabag season one, I thought, not that I was ever worried about Fleabag season two, I thought it would be excellent. I was. I thought, no, I knew it would be excellent, but I didn't truly know for sure it was going to live up to season one because it was so fresh and new season one and I just thought we know Fleabag now so how can it be as incredible and it was better by far it's like how did something so good turn into something so soulful and spectacular so I truly do believe if anyone can do I mean it's not a difficult second album because you've done two seasons of Fleabag you've done Killing Eve you've now done a Bond it's not like this is difficult but your difficult 12th album whatever it is that it's going to be I just believe now I'd, after seeing Fleabag season 2 I totally believe thank you now, now I feel panicky. <laughs> that was a, the pressure think, is officially on. But I think also the thing that I've learned and can now be more specific about with myself is I think if you're always writing from where you're feeling then in that moment or what you feel like you want to see in that moment or want to create in that moment and you're not second-guessing the future or second-guessing your audience, it's just tapping into what you're feeling at the time. Like when I was writing season two, I just wanted to feel a love story, see a love story. I wanted to write about love. And so that's why that, where that story came from. I think mm. if, if you're writing from where you are in that moment, then it will feel truthful and authentic. Mm. So I'm just, and so, I do know what's next. So I, and I feel excited about that. You do know what's next. Can you share that with us? Just the end. <gasps> um, no, I'm writing a film. Also, I feel quite calm because I know what I'm doing next. If I didn't have an idea, I think I'd be really panicky. Because then I would be thinking, where does the next thing come from? How can it be different from mm. Fleabag or Killing Eve or anything? So I think I'm lucky in that I went to bed on the last filming day of Fleabag thinking, oh my God, that was the most amazing journey. Holy shit, I'm never going to have another idea. And then the next morning I had this idea. <laughs> and um, it was kind of crazy. And the moment I had that, and now I'm completely obsessed with that idea. And I'm really excited about it. And it's, for, it's a movie and... 
I'm collaborating really closely with my sister, Isabel, on it, and I've just never been more excited about writing something. So, that, so that, that's given me... I mean, it may, who knows, be just dreadful. <laughs> but, but I'm excited, so it's distracting me from that pressure. It won't be. It will be incredible. We're as excited as you are about that film now. Uh, <laughs> we will all be there on opening weekend. I'm going to ask you a few more quick ones from the audience. What are your ambitions, your next career goals, Wesley asks? Have you got any big goals, anything you'd love to do? What do you have to do before you die? This movie. This movie. Don't die before you die on the movie. Um, I'd really like to write another play. Um, I don't know. I, I, I can just keep keep writing. It sounds like you take one project at a time. Oh, yeah, I really do. And when this yeah. film ends, you'll go to bed thinking I'll never have another idea and you'll wake up going, <gasps> I've got a plan. Hopefully, hopefully. This is from Shula. Bereavement is very raw and a complicated thing. The way you write about grief and grieving is one of the few fictional examples that really resonates with me. What was the first or most powerful fictional depiction of grief that touched or inspired you? Bambi. <laughs> Without question. But also because it's so brutal. Mm. His dad just says, get over it. It will pass. It will pass. <gasps> but he looms over him. He's not at some nice little bus stop. That's, um, but I remember, I really do remember that. I remember being so shocked by the, the dad saying, get over it, and then just hoofing off. Yeah. Well, it was made a long time ago, and children were expected to man up. I like it, though. Yeah. <laughs> I thought it was brilliant. It, it will pass. Uh, who would you rather be stuck in a lift with, Fleabag, Eve, or Villanelle, says Doug and Laura. I sort of live with them most of the time <laughs> in my head. Um, who would I most like to be stuck in a lift with? Probably Villanelle. What? Yeah. You would, can, you would die in that lift? Well, you just don't know what she's going to do to you, do you? No, definitely I feel like, Fleabag for me. Really? Oh, my God. I feel yeah. like, I think, Fleabag, you might have to start up a conversation. I think Villanelle, I just, it would be exciting. Because you just don't know. You just don't she know. She lives to amuse herself. Actually, so does Fleabag. Can we just have a lift party? Right, we're all in the lift. Fleabag, E, Villanelle, you and me. You have to protect me from Villanelle. This is perhaps maybe our last one. Since the phenomenal success of Fleabag, your face has become one of the most recognised in showbiz. Compared to, say, three or four years ago, are you still able to do things that we mere mortals do every day, like taking the tube, popping into the pub for a quick pint, or going for lunch at Pizza Express? I assume, <laughs> I assume that's not Pizza Express woking... Um, because that is a place where heads turn. Uh, are you still able to pop into Pizza Express? I'm a massive fan of Pizza Express. Are you? Massive fan. Well, you'll be sent a card now. <laughs> um, yeah, totally. People don't really care that much about, like... When you get, this is what I've realised is that if you're at an event or you do something like that, then it's crazy and you meet all these people. And it's, but when you, people yeah. on the tube, people don't look at other people, and and even if they do, they don't care. Do you wear a <laughs> baseball cap on the tube now? No, no. Do you not? And people don't come up and just say, "Oh, I just have to say." No, they do. But I have to say that the Fleabag fans are the most polite 
fans Aww. I've ever. I've got a couple of friends who have a different experience, which is like, you're mine! And like they grab their face. <laughs> and uh, I always have, sorry, 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 sorry. I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry, I don't want anything. I don't want anything. I just, I just want to say, I just want to say um, goodbye. Thank you. Uh, goodbye, goodbye, goodbye. <laughs> so thank you, they're the best. <laughs> Well, on that note, it's time to end. Grab yourself a few copies of Fleabag, the scriptures. It's already a Sunday Times bestseller and it has been apparently since the moment it came out a couple of weeks ago and it will continue to be on that bestseller list for a very long time. Uh, you also, it also, Fleabag won how many Emmys? How many Emmys did you win? Three. No. <laughs> you won three. The show I won, won three, more. But yeah, Harry, you five, won three. five, I think. The show won more. Five, yeah, five, it won yeah. five. But it was nominated for... Six. six. It won Thank six. you. Do I hear any advances on six? Do I hear seven Emmys? Thank you, Michael. Do I hear eight <laughs> Emmys? Including Killing Eve. They were just over those two and shows. And Jodie won, yeah. Yeah, there Jody. were loads. You were, and, and that iconic image of you sitting in a chair having a fag, single-handedly <laughs> brought smoking back, vaping's out, gang. Don't smoke, children, don't smoke. But it was a pretty fucking cool moment. <laughs> I did see somebody on Twitter say that's going to replace the Audrey Hepburn poster on all of the students' walls now of just you sitting there with a fag surrounded by Emmys. Long may the Emmys, and now with this new movie, Oscars, rain down on you like the ideas do. Um, Phoebe, to go from a basement in Leicester Square Theatre, where frankly, as we said in the wings, no one gave a fuck about either of us, uh, to being sitting here in the Royal Festival Hall talking about the mega success that is Fleabag. It has been a true honour and wonder all the way. You are a magnificent person and you're someone, I will say this, Phoebe is such, such a supporter of women and I have never, and this is true, uh, and I've been on a writer's retreat where I heard some scandalous things come out of her mouth, but I have never heard her say a bad word about anybody and I think there is an authenticity to her work that comes out that's attached to the integrity of the human being that she is. And I just wanted to say that because sometimes you see people on stage and they look all shiny and glamorous, but backstage, they're absolute bitches. And when Phoebe came in, she shook the hand of every single person who was working here. My advice, if you're a writer, uh, is also be a person of integrity and then put that on the stage. Uh, thank you so much, the wonderful Phoebe Waller-Bridge. Thank you. Thank you so much. This is mad. Thank you. Thank you, Deborah. You're amazing. Thank you.